Now these are the exhortations from the Word of God. What's happened to this nation of ours? What an incredible fall. There has been no nation on the face of the earth that has fallen as far as this nation. What did Jesus say to those cities that where the disciples went in to preach the gospel? He said, if they don't listen to you, shake the dust off your feet and walk out. And he says it'll be worse for them than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Can you mean, can you imagine that? Worse for them than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember we talked about Chorazin and another city there? He said, woe to you because you didn't receive the word. You know, those, those cities are obliterated. They're not even in existence today. Well, what is God going to do to the nation, this nation of the United States, when we realize where it came from? We talk time and time again, and by the grace of God, next I'm looking forward to the 4th of July next year. I want to teach you how the United States was actually formed. Some people think, well, they're just a bunch of pilgrims came over. You know that was a local church that came over here? The original pilgrims was a, a body of believers that came over here? Their pastor died over there, and their assistant pastor brought them over here. That's right. The founding pilgrims that landed on these shores were all born-again, committed, holiness preachers, I mean, uh, Christians. They wanted to find some place. In fact, the nation in which they were at that time said, if you'll stay here, we'll give you all this land, or you're such wonderful uh, citizens, we want you to stay here. But they realized that another one could rise up and they would not have their freedoms and they could not, could not do what they wanted to do. They launched out and came to the United States and committed, dedicated this land to Jesus Christ. We've come a long way. The, the basis and foundation of our nation was based upon solid conviction and principles. Thou shall not steal, thou shall not kill. Nowadays, of course, we're told thou shall not kill or steal except under certain circumstances where it's understandable. And thou shalt not uh, commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, forget those. Those aren't for the day. These are the 90s. I read where, of course, the, the, the evidence of the, the Christian uh, background of this nation is so voluminous it would take months to try to read it all to you even, but I just noticed here that John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, made this statement, the highest glory of the American Revolution was, of course we would say independence from England, or the releasing of being taxed on everything, the tea tax, and uh, you know I wonder why you used to have so few windows in the, in the old colonial houses back east, because every window you had you were taxed on it, and if you put a screen on it you were taxed more. And if you had a closet, you were taxed for the closet. They wouldn't have a closet. They'd just run a rod across the end of the room and hang up their clothes in the room. Uh, because the taxes were the, the greatest, highest glory of the American Revolution was independence. And that isn't what he said. He said the highest glory of the American Revolution was that it connected in one indissolvable bond the principles of civil government and the principles of Christianity. When we had that American Revolution, he said that for once, now, the civil government and Christian principles can be put together and we can function as we ought to. George Washington said this nation cannot be controlled if it is not filled with biblical principles. It's only the Bible that's going to be, allow us to control this nation. Now, if you don't believe that's true, look what happened since they took the Bible out of the, out of the schools. Look what happened to our nation. In, in that time when John Quincy Adams was president, it was interesting to note that 98% of the citizenry of the United States were Protestant believers. 1.8% were Catholic, 0.2% were Jewish, but all were believers. See, God founded this nation on biblical principles, and the, the educational system under, undergirded that all the way. Do you know that the first attorneys that were trained in the United States, the only book they used, they didn't have libraries, the only book they used to train to be an attorney was the Bible. Now, you talk about coming a long way... 
Who are some of the least respected people in this nation today in profession? But back then, the only right and wrong was based upon what does the Word of God say? Today, you can't even get a Bible in the, in the courtroom if you wonder how far we've come. In 1820, the Christian education was founded, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, all these schools. Young men were going there to get their final graduate degrees at the ages of 14, 15, 16, 17 to get their degrees. And the basic textbook that they used at all times was the Word of God. They learned to read, they learned to write, they learned history, they learned all these things out of the Word of God. Then in 1905 came the word progressive education with Mr. John Dewey. Next election time, listen for those who use the word progressive. And whenever you hear it, let a little red flag go up. This is progressive education. This is progressive government. This is... <laughs> John Dewey, the word progressive education was used by John Dewey, and he held socialist and anti-Christian philosophy where the Bible should be separated from academics, should not be involved in school whatsoever. By the way, you remember when in 1837 when public education began, what the main book was besides the Bible? McGuffey Reader. And someone let me read the McGuffey Reader just several years ago. It's almost like reading the Bible. If they want to learn how to read, they had to they read portions of the Scripture. And they asked questions back there of third and fourth graders that theology students today would form. People were grounded in the Word of God. And by the way, when progressive education came out, the church was very silent, didn't say anything, just rolled over and played dead. I mean, after all, we're supposed to stay in the church and not get involved in our government. In 1933, the humanistic education was introduced to the United States. The humanistic, Humanist Manifesto, written by John Dewey and 33 other men, said that God and supernatural must be rejected by our educational system and replaced by man's reason, science, and especially evolution. We've got to get rid of the other things. The, and then the manifesto, and by the way, the manifesto to the humanists is what the Bible is to Christians. That's their bedrock life belief. They are established in that, and that's what they believe, and that's what they're going to hold on to. And while they were holding on to it, the watchmen were still asleep, not declaring, not standing up, and going against it. I want to tell you something, there's going to be a lot of blood on a lot of preachers' hands because they did not declare what the Word of God had to say. In 1963, an anti-Christian education program was introduced into the church schools, and all of us were here when that happened. Not just secular, but anti-Christian education. Bible reading and prayer was thrown out, said they were unconstitutional. Thank God we're beginning to raise up against that now and starting to find out that we can have some rights in school that weren't taken away from us. These books, the Word of God and prayer, were replaced with books on immorality. We find the schools began to distribute condoms and have release time, of course. We used to have release time for, for uh, young people to go out to a church somewhere and have a preaching or teaching on the Word of God. Now the only time they'll release the young people is if they want to go and have an abortion. We find that rebellion is replaced, obedience in the school. I, you know, I was, I was really bad in school. I was out in the hall so much when I was in school because I wasn't a Christian. I mean, I chewed gum in my classes. Every once in a while, I'd pull somebody's hair. Every once in a while, I'd write a note. I mean, horrible things like that. I mean, teachers just thought they were going to throw up their hands and quit teaching because of one uh, terrible things that somebody like I would do. You want to compare that to what's happening in schools today because the Word of God's been taken out? Occult practices and teachings are going into our schools today. We're taught meditation, relaxation principles by using occult practices. 
unnatural lifestyles are being taught and presented and promoted in our schools now to where they're actually having prostitutes coming in and talking to grade school and junior high young people telling them of their lifestyle homosexuals and lesbians are coming in and teaching these lifestyles in our schools replacing the word of God value clarification is coming into our school where they ask our children all about their family life and their personal life having them write suicide notes what it would be like to write a suicide note and talk about it we are in a crisis and up till now up till recently the church has been very very quiet the Supreme Court quit establishing justice and I, I wrote down what one of the former US Supreme Court justices wrote he said nothing is more certain in modern society than the principle that there are no absolutes. He's absolutely sure of that. But there are absolutely no absolutes. No foundation, no basis for judging. If that's the case, then our nation is built upon sand. And Jesus said what's going to happen to the house that's built upon sand. The church is still asleep. Thank God that that's not true. I'm going to stop right here because it's, it's time to stop because I've got a lot more to say next Sunday morning since we have a special speaker who has traveled internationally and will be uh, sharing with us tonight. I'm looking forward to that. I, I'm thrilled when our young people stand up and speak and declare God's word. I hope that, that this will just be the beginning that every one of them in the days ahead, everywhere they go, they'll be able to stand up and declare the word of God and know for certainty what they believe and why they believe it. It's one thing to just listen to it all the time, but it's another thing to say, what do I believe, and write it down and get up and say it. Makes a difference. And I want to ask you something. Does your church reinforce the convictions that you hold? The second question is, are you sure what your convictions are? If you're not, then you're probably one of those that float from church to church to church looking for something that will please you instead of something that will change you. May I encourage you to study to show yourselves approved unto God, workmen that do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you'll do that, God will honor you, and if you'll do it and then make it effective in this nation, we can turn this nation around. I want to tell you something. This next election that's coming up is going to be one of the most important, crucial crossroads in our nation's history. Either we're going, they're going to go a little bit too far and there's going to be a backlash of, of people who are going to try to stop it and go in the other direction again, and you might as well write us off when that happens. And there's going to be many lies and many twisted tales told between now and the next election. And you and I better establish our feelings based on the word of God and not what we hear politicians say. Go to their voting records, see what they did, not to what they say. You see, for some reason, there's a big dichotomy between what they say and what they do, and you better check what they do before you believe what they say. And then say, what does the word of God say? What are my principles? It doesn't make any difference how nice they look or how well they sound. The question is, are, do they believe what I believe? I'm practical enough to know that none of them will fill all those vacancies. None of them will fill all those requirements. But you've got to find the one that's the closest that you possibly can to what you believe. And then vote accordingly. What did I tell you a couple weeks ago? If all the evangelical Christians in one election would vote based upon what the Word of God's principles are, we could revolutionize. I mean, it's larger than the next five political groups together. You wonder why politicians are running scared? This giant is beginning to wake up. But yet, only 33% of the believers have taken a stand and voted. And many of them have voted ignorantly. Have voted in the death of babies. They've voted in 
homosexuality and, and all kinds of unnatural lifestyles. They voted it in by voting people in who would vote for those things. Let me tell you something. We will stand before God and we will answer in that day. We know what God's Word says. And if we go along with it, we become partakers in that wickedness. Regardless, I want to tell you something. You and I are not Democrats. We are not Republicans. We are not independents. We're believers. We don't hide our, our faith under the bushel of whatever the economy says to us. We hide it under what the Word of God says and let it shine regardless of what anybody else says. And whenever the church does that, this nation can be changed. I appreciate Dr. James Kennedy and the strong stand he's taken and Dr. Dobson, the strong stand he's been taking and the difference that it's been making in the world. And uh, Brother Wildman and some of those that have stood up and said, we don't care what you say, we know what the Word says, this is what we believe. If we can just not believe all these statements that will come out and say well, they're radical and they're crazy and all, what does this say? Heaven and earth will pass away, my Word will never pass away. But you have to have biblical conviction. Find out what God's Word says. Then you don't have to be afraid to stand. Heavenly Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that it will become a conviction to us that our church has to teach foundational truths of the Bible and reinforce our basic convictions and that each one of us will say, Lord, teach me what my basic convictions ought to be. Show me from God's Word, Father, what it should be. And then whatever the cost, I will stand. I will be everything I'm supposed to be. Father, I thank you for every family that's here, every life that's here. I pray this morning if there be any that have never made Jesus Christ Lord and Master of their life, that they'll realize Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Said, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out, and that we can receive Him as our Lord and Master, and our lives can be totally transformed. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that there be any here this morning that have stumbled and fallen, that failed, are discouraged, that they will realize that Jesus said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, I just pray this morning that you'll encourage our hearts to realize that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And that we will concern ourselves with studying the word of God, knowing the word of God, standing on the word of God, as those who, hearing, having heard the word of God, obey it. I pray that that will be our principle today. And that we'll walk it out in this coming week that Jesus Christ will be glorified in our life and those around us will see the light and recognize that we are people of conviction. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen. As you know, we've been speaking on the subject of biblical certainty. The importance of Christians having convictions that will hold them through the storms of life. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you again in the name of Jesus. We acknowledge without the Lord Jesus we can do nothing without the Holy Spirit. We will learn nothing of value, of lasting value, or of eternal value. We ask tonight that the Holy Spirit will quicken the word to our heart, the truths of God's word, the principles of God to our heart, that we will not only be hearers but doers of the word, because that's what you said was, would represent the wise man. Those in the good soil who, having received, heard the word, receive it and obey it. I pray that this will be true in our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. We have been talking about biblical certainties. We're on number four. The Bible is a supernatural book unlike any other. As a believer, I must purpose to seek God and set my goals according to his priorities. 
My body is the temple of the Holy Ghost and must not be defiled by the lusts of the world. And now number four, but my church, my church must teach the foundational truths of Scripture and reinforce my conviction. Very important, and I, have, I am amazed when I talk to people who attend churches where they do not even agree with the fundamental uh, doctrines that the churches teach. They say, well, I know they don't believe the Word of God to be totally the Word of God, but they say the pastor says that the miracles are not real, they're just, you know, stories, but you can't really take them as real. And they'll continue to follow after those churches. They'll teach ungodly principles. They will, they will uh, practice ungodly principles, non-scriptural principles, and yet they'll attend it because they say, well, it's such a nice place to go and there's such a friendly atmosphere there. But I want to tell you something. In the days ahead, it isn't going to take friendly people or a nice atmosphere to meet the needs that we're going to face when the storm hits. We've got to know what the Word of God says and stand upon it. And last week we talked about concerning this conviction that in the past few decades we've had what is called a crisis of authority inside and outside the church. And we kind of gave a little outline as to some of the things that has led up to that crisis of authority. And that was the fact that our nation was founded on biblical principles and upon the Word of God. The first uh, Supreme Court justice said that to a man who had blasphemed Jesus Christ and cursed the Word of God, that, that he, the court considered that a direct attack against the government of the United States, which was founded upon biblical principles and in faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we've come a long ways from there, but uh, the second thing was our educational system was built and established in this country, first of all by the church and based upon, totally upon the Word of God. In 1905, we heard what was called progressive education, which was introduced by Dewey, who said that the education and religion must be separate, must not have religion in the school. In 1933, humanism was introduced. That sounds like a very innocuous word, not any harmful word. Humanism, it sounds nice, but uh, it's very, very deadly and dangerous. It was introduced into the school system and into our nation in 1933. In 1963, we established not just progressive education, but anti-Christian education programs in our public schools. And the Word of God was put out and the prayer was put out. And now, uh, finally, the church is awakening and coming back to try to take back what they know was available to us as believers to begin with. And one Supreme Court justice says the one thing that's absolutely sure and absolutely positive is that in the government of the United States there are no absolutes anymore. Nothing, all things are relative. They can change overnight just depending on the whims and the ways of those that are in charge of our government. And the church during this time has, had been silent and just kind of went back inside their walls and said, well, I guess we're not supposed to get involved in that. Thank God the church is beginning to awaken to the fact that that's not necessarily true. Then we said in 1973, the Humanist Manifesto Number no. 2 was presented to the United States government. I, I, I mean, in the United States. And I read Tim LaHaye's book called The Battle for the Mind. The teachings, he, he gave some, some excerpts of the teaching of the Humanist Manifesto Number no. 2 concerning their beliefs. First of all, their atheistic beliefs. He said, we find, they said in the manifesto, we find insufficient evidence for belief in the existence of the supernatural. As non-theists, that means those who do not believe in God, non-theists, we begin with man, not God. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. So this innocuous word is called humanism says we do not believe in God. We don't need a God. We don't need anyone to save us. If we're going to be saved, we're going to save ourselves. Then concerning 
the creation or the beginning of life. They said in their Humanist, Humanist Manifesto 2, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing. You know, that's really an antonym, religious humanists. They're not religious as far, they're religious as far as false religion, false faith is concerned, but not Christian. It says religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. The human species is an emergence from natural evolutionary forces. That's the position they take. Even though humanists and evolutionary scientists have placed the DNA in the computers, I said a few weeks ago, to see how long it would take to develop the DNA of the human DNA, and it came back and say that, said that regardless of how much time it would take, it was impossible, totally impossible. It had to be created by a higher form of intelligence. But the humanists disregard that, say that we believe in the natural evolutionary forces. Concerning morality, right or wrong, it says ethics. Now, ethics means what? Your morals, your conduct. As far as ethics are, ethics is autonomous. In other words, self-sustaining. Moral conduct uh, is, is self-sustaining. We know that. I mean, leave things alone and everything gets better, doesn't it? Or it just stays the same. It's self-sustaining and situational. You have to be very careful the words they use. Self-sustaining and situational. That means what is wrong here may not be wrong there. That's why they say thou shalt not commit adultery under normal circumstances. Thou shalt not steal. But there are times when you can steal. You wonder why the courts are going crazy today and their, their decisions are just out of sight. One person will walk up to his wife in, in Orlando, go to a policeman, borrow the gun, drive over to her apartment, come up, knock on the door, she opens the door, he fires six shells right into her chest and kills her, and he goes to jail for six months. When someone else will shoot a squirrel into jail six months to a year and pay a $500 fine. Uh, there's no correlation between them. Each one is separate. Each circumstance is different. We have to judge it whether it's right or wrong. And there were some in the court that were trying to say the woman who drowned her two children, that uh, you have to understand that the situation she was in right at that time, she had to make some kind of decisions. And, and emotionally, she, was, she made a decision. But they don't want her to be held responsible for the decision she made. Why? Because it's situational. And it says, goes on, it says, ethics is autonomous and situational and stem from self-interest. We favor the right to birth control, abortion, divorce, and the choice of sex direction. In other words, we believe in homosexuality, we believe in lesbianism, we believe in, in transvestism, all these things. We believe all these are, are civil rights, we all must be able to do them. Concerning the government, they believe in a socialistic world government. It says, we believe in maximum individual autonomy, maximum self-rule. We reject all religious moral codes that suppress freedom. You wonder why they say, that when we speak up and say that's, that's immoral, it's going to destroy our society, you're trying to take away our freedom. That's humanistic teaching. It says to reject all religious moral codes that suppress freedom. We demand civil liberties, including the right to oppose government policies, the right to die with dignity, euthanasia, and suicide. That's our humanist believers. Then he went on to say, we have reached a turning point in human history where the best often is to transcend the limits of national sovereignty and move toward the building of a world community. The peaceful adjudication of differences by international courts. 
We are being brainwashed right now every day as we're sitting in front of our TVs and they're telling us, look how impotent the, the uh, UN is right now over in Bosnia. We need to set up a force that can go in there and deal with that nation. And as the nation is saying, yes, that's right, we need to get more people together and more people together. We need to get more soldiers. We need to give them more authority. Do you understand what's happening? They're using that situation over there. And once it's established as a policy, if ever the time comes that Christians in this nation says we cannot stand up for this, we cannot go along with this world decision they're making for a world government, the UN will be able to come in and put us down in this nation. They said, you say that to a policy, oh no, they can't do it. Don't let them fool you. They've already signed papers that say they can. They can come in and they will be it. Let me tell you something, though. It's coming because Jesus said it was going to come. There's going to be a one world ruler in the days ahead. And this is where it's coming from. These teachings where it's coming from. And our colleges and universities and our courts and our corporations are filled with humanists, filled with new agers, filled with occult teachers. And our society is being permeated by this teaching in publications, television broadcasting, programming, and the church, consequently, is being trodden underfoot. Christians are being presented as dodos and, and uh, incompetent, as people who are uh, way out in space somewhere, and the church just sits back. Now, if they were to do that, same thing that they're doing to Christians in many of the films in Hollywood and on television today, if they were to do that to the Jews or to black people, I mean, you would have riots in the street and they'd be burning down buildings to do all these things. But the church sits back and says, hmm, praise Jesus. You know, again, we have to be careful of our mentality. We almost have the mentality of why we arrange the seats on the deck of the Titanic. This world is going down anyway. Let her go. But Jesus said we are to be a light in, in the darkness. We are to be a witness in the testimony. We are to be salt to stop the pollution. And we can't do it if we sit on our hands and not declare our position. Also, we have the privilege in the United States to be able to declare what we believe God's Word says. And we have a lot of power, as I said two weeks ago to be able to vote and be able to make a difference in this nation right now. We have many representatives and senators and one vice president, one president right now, and many of them have a moral, humanistic philosophy, and they're deciding the direction that this nation's going in. And for the past 30 or 40 years, that's been the controlling factor in our government. Thank God this is turning around. It's not just in federal, but in state governments also. The legislators, the judges, the governors, and the attorney generals have come up with criminal rights to where you and I have no right. Criminals can, can maim people and go to prison and have air-conditioned situation and, and food. Uh, and then the people that have been maimed and everything have to just somehow find a way to get over it. We have pornography. You try to get stop pornography today and they say that you're taking away the freedom of the press and the freedom of speech. With abortion, they're talking about women's rights. I remember who it was. One godly uh, man in our history made the statement, when a nation becomes more interested in rights than responsibilities, that nation is doomed to failure. The U.S. News and World Report talking about how new changes in our moral codes are taking place said the Carter campaign when it was being run in New York provided funds to hire seven organizers to register homosexual voters. The president, has de the president designated a staff member as liaison to them and quietly initiated other moves such as trying to make sure that homosexuals are not discriminated against in federal, in federal hiring. That was one of the things that began it. Then in the President Clinton, when President Clinton became president, the Justice Department staff was filled with radical homosexual people. When they came in, one of the Christian men over at WTLN said that 
All of them had the pink triangle on their coat when they came in to take over the Justice Department when Clinton became president. And then monies were, have been made, made available by them to promote alternate lifestyles in our public schools. His justification again, I am the president of all the people. Well, then why doesn't he also have uh, child molesters and murderers sitting on the platform during the election like he did the homosexual community? Why doesn't he have sadomasochists sitting on the platform? He's president of all the people. Why doesn't he have them sitting on the platform? They're using this justification in order to do the thing they want to do with humanist philosophy. Now, I want to tell you something. The minute you recognize them, you legitimatize them, and you authorize them to go further than they have in the past. And uh, President Clinton has had radicals on the platform and, and given them that credibility. And uh, some pro-morality leaders have been horrified to see the direction that the nation is going. They are ridiculed as right-wing radicals, and the others are those who have been mistreated. The church has been asleep, but thank God it's starting to rouse itself. And if we do not warn, then the blood's going to be upon our hands. If we do not declare what God's Word says, when you see trouble coming, oh, watchman, if you don't stand up and declare it, God says that man will die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at your hands. And it's required of the church to say what God says and to warn the people before it's too late. The thing that I realize and I keep saying is if the Word of God is placed outside of the church and outside of the government, there will be no other standard. Anything goes, and the end result will be chaos and a crisis of authority. And the humanist says that man and society and democracy, the majority rules. We'll take a poll. Whatever the, the people say, that's what we will do. They'll be right. How many of you know that's right as long as you have a godly majority? Once you don't have a godly majority anymore, anymore then everything that they're going to decide will eventually be wrong. If the majority says drugs are okay, and what did we just hear this last couple of weeks in Washington, D.C.? We ought to legitimatize and legalize drugs. If Christianity is wrong, and the majority says it's wrong, then we'll begin to make laws to stop Christianity from being able to function in the United States. If alternate lifestyles are okay, then that's what we'll promote, and we'll put it on television, we'll put it in the movies, we'll do it everywhere we can influence people. We'll just supply what society wants. Well, I'll tell you what the natural society wants. They want homosexuality and incest and wife-swapping and depravity and anything that's anti-Christian. Thank God again that the voice of the church is beginning to rise up and declare what God has to say. They are establishing in our government by force. They have been by force what they knew they could not do at the polls by trying to put it through with liberal judges, passing laws or denying rights to people Christians and so forth. Many of you remember when the anti-abortion forces were arrested in some of the major cities of our country. The police mutilated some of them, bent their arms back, pulled their arms out of the socket, humiliated some of the women, stripping them and taking and dragging them in front of all the prisoners. If they had done that to the civil rights leaders years ago with Jesse Jackson and some of the others, Martin Luther King, you wouldn't have heard the end of it. But they humiliated them, hurt them, wounded them, and the judge just said, Tougher. That's just tough. Now, finally, enough Christian attorneys are getting in there and are beginning to find that they were, they did things that are illegal. Now they're going to have to pay for it. But for a long time, the church said absolutely nothing. The only absolute allowed is the absolute insistence that there is no absolute. That's what they said. There absolutely is no absolute. Nothing. You can't say Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. 
You can't say that he that hath the Son hath life and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. That's too absolute. Someone said that the humanist 23rd Psalm is, I am my shepherd. And when that wasn't enough, they said, my sheep are my shepherd. And then they came to, everything is my shepherd. And today is nothing is my shepherd. And that's where they come from. I'm going to rule myself. Then all those that are around me that are of like mind, they'll, they'll, they'll direct me. Now everything around me that can influence me will become a shepherd. Not, nobody's. I don't have a shepherd anymore. I don't need a shepherd anymore. I am my own person. Let me just ask you, if there are no absolutes by which to judge society, does that mean that society is absolute? If there are no absolutes by which to judge society, then does that not mean that society itself is absolute? We cannot declare anything to, to society. Society has the rule. The end result is mob rule and anarchy. And the church has to cry out. You see, in communist nations, I remember where they used to stand up in, on boxes years ago when I was in college. Young men would stand up on boxes in Minneapolis and different places, and they'd declare, in the communist countries, everybody's equal. Everybody has food. Everybody has a job. Everybody has a meal. I like one guy walked up. He said, hey, we got that in this country. He says, where? He says, in Sing Sing. That, was a, that wasn't a musical college. That was a prison. He said, we have the same thing here in the United States. In our prison system, everybody has a job. Everybody has meals. Everybody has a room. Everybody's equal. Nobody above anyone else. The elite rule with arbitrariness and authoritarianism. And they're unstable and unchanged. You know that in many of these communist nations, when one man is assassinated, the rules go this way, and he gets assassinated, and the next guy sets in, changes all the rules, and the people are constantly wondering, what's right today? What's politically correct tomorrow? Because they have no foundation, no absolutes. Francis Schaeffer made this statement, and I appreciate it. He said, no true authoritarian government can tolerate those who have a real absolute. Let me say that again. No true authoritarian government can tolerate those who have a real absolute. He's talking about Christians who have convictions by which to judge that government's arbitrary absolutes and who speak out and act on their absolutes. That's true in the early church. That's why they got mad at the Christian in the early church. They turned the world upside down. They said that isn't what the Word of God says. We won't worship Caesar. We won't bow down to these things. It's true in Russia and China. It's becoming true in the United States. The thrust, an all-powerful government trying to control people's minds and wills, control them by the HRS and the IRS. And I'm not saying these things are all bad. I'm saying they're becoming dominant to control the individual people beyond what the rights of the government should be. They want the children in daycare from, from the cradle, and they want to control people until they go into the grave. They want to control what happens in the church in China. They have what they call the, the official three-man three, uh, three man church or something like that. I think, can't, can't remember what, three-something church. And all it is is communist agents who have taken over the church, and they inspect every message that every pastor ever preaches, and they know every action, every job, that uh, every program that every church has. So the Christians started home churches. Oh, that's illegal. You can't do that. The home churches have exploded. Many of them are thrown in prison, sent to hard labor for many, many years. They come back and the church is multiplied many times over because they've got freedom. They cannot block or hold in the spirit of man. 
The humanist dogma is this. All alienating forces, and that involves Christianity, must be modified or eradicated. Isn't that incredible? This is the philosophy that's taking place around the world today. All alienating forces must be modified or eradicated. Now the church is beginning to stir up. The humanists are starting to say, oh, these right-wing fanatics, we believe in the separation of church and state. Where were they when Martin Luther King was going? All these pastors and raising money in the black churches, where were they then? They weren't available because they were promoting, that group was promoting exactly what they wanted. You see, they're really afraid of the true church. It's too strong. The last record I got, uh, last record I could find was that there are approximately 275,000 humanists in the United States. 275,000 humanists. A hundred million religious, pro-moralist people of all faiths. 50 million, more, over 50 million evangelical Christians. 50 million idealistic moralists that have to either be modified or eradicated. We're on a collision course of humanism, and thank God the church is finally waking up. The church is asked to compromise, modify your program in the name of individual rights, relinquish your Christian rights. There have been all kinds of attacks recently on the media, those conservative programs. How many of you know that they want to get Rush Limbaugh off the radio if they possibly can? They're trying to come back with the fairness doctrine where he speaks for three hours. He's got to pay for and allow another, the station has to pay for and allow another liberal to come on and speak for three hours. They want to get that back if they possibly can. They tried to get Jerry Falwell off because he spoke against homosexuality. James Robinson and Pat Robinson have both been attacked by different agencies from the government. They're trying to find some way to get them off the air. And they're talking now about eventually the taxation of the churches is going to come. Anything they can do to bring down the power and the authority. They don't understand something, though. You see, they think if we can just make them pay taxes on their property, then we'll have them tied down. Well, all they'll do is get rid of their property and go into the homes and go into the catacombs and go into the tunnels and caves wherever they have to go. You can't quench the fire that Christ has established on this earth. Time for us to awaken and realize that we're in a warfare. We have to come to the place that my church must teach the foundational truth of the Bible and reinforce my biblical convictions because I have to know what I believe, why I believe it, and be able to take a stand and speak out on what I believe. Remember how Elijah, when he was on Mount Carmel, how he said to the nation who was very depraved at that time and corrupted, they had been worshiping idols, he said, How long halt you between two opinions? If God be God, then serve him. And he destroyed all the prophets of Baal, and there was a revival in the land. That's what's going to have to take place in the days ahead. I'm going to stop there tonight. I want us to realize that we are in a warfare, spiritual warfare, political warfare. All these things are coming against the church of Jesus Christ. This is why I keep encouraging parents, teach your children biblical principles. Sunday school teachers, teach them biblical principles. When I'm preaching, teach them biblical principles. Thank God for the young people who have gone off in this church they are ministering in other places around the country. I'm excited about Will when he gets out of school, how he's going to begin to be able to declare the Word of God also. And just a seed here and a seed there, and they just multiply. The question is, is the church ready for the onslaught that could come in the days ahead? Jesus said, don't fear them that can destroy your body, but rather just fear them, God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And they have taken Christians over in China. One Christian father had all of his sons and daughters brought in front of him and his wife. And one by, he'd been a communist, and he accepted Christ. And they said, we want you to reject and renounce Jesus Christ. 
And he said, I can never do that. Jesus Christ is the most precious possession I have. And he said, if you don't, you'll kill your wife. He said, my wife will go to be with the Lord. I love her dearly, but she is not afraid to die. And in front of him, they shot his wife. Then they blinded each of his children while he was standing there watching and then slowly killed each one of them and said, when are you going to repent? He said, I have no reason to repent. My children all know the Lord and they'll go to be with the Lord. I thank God for their faith in Jesus Christ. They threw him into prison and gave him hard labor for many years. He came out and today is a mighty soldier for Jesus Christ in China preaching the word. What would happen here in the United States if that were to happen to us? Could we stand? We can if we know what our convictions are. If we know what the word of God has to say. In this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? Father, help us to know our convictions. Help us to stand on our convictions. Help us to, to establish ourselves in the biblical convictions that when the storm comes, you just said it would come, and when it comes, we'll be able to stand. And Father, when the storm isn't here, that we'll be able to take every opportunity to declare the truth that we know to declare the convictions you've placed in our hearts from the Word of God to where we'll, that we'll be able to influence and affect those that are around about us, that this church of Jesus Christ will continue to go on growing and the young people and adults alike will begin to win others to Jesus Christ and we'll have a revolution in this nation, just as we're seeing starting to take place right now. Father, I pray the church will not become indifferent, but will become stronger and stronger in their convictions every single day. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Luke wrote the gospel, trying to explain and bring together all the things concerning the life of Christ, not all of them, but as many as were necessary according to the Holy Spirit. And he said in chapter 1, verse 1, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, O most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. That's so powerful there, that second verse, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers, he said, the things that I'm telling you are not hearsay. They're not third person. These are things that are a reality by those that were with Christ, those that saw Christ, those that lived with Christ. And so these things that we're telling you now, you can be confidently assured if you believe this, you're in. You're on the right track. Now, Luke said that, and later on, Paul the Apostle said, those things that you have been taught you teach the faithful men, not other things that come into your mind that you think you want to vary a little bit on, but these are the basic needs that you should share to people. You share with other faithful men who will share with other faithful men who will share with other faithful men. One of our greatest problems today is we've had unfaithful men who have taken up the desire to preach and teach, and they've gotten off on their own little tangents, and we have a result, the resulting confusion today. Many, many, many different denominations with the basic element being true. Many of them believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but they've gone off on all kinds of tangents besides. And because of that, all error is truth taken to an extreme. And that's where we're in problem. That's why I have to come back and say, what are the basic biblical certainties of the Word of God? 
Now, up till now, we've been talking about, these are the certainties, I think most of you have got these down already. The Bible is a supernatural book unlike any other. As a believer, I must purpose to seek God and to set my goals according to his priority. My body is a temple of the Holy Ghost and must not be defiled by the lust of the world. Now, we've been speaking concerning my church must teach the foundational truths of Scripture and reinforce my conviction. Uh, we said that in the last few decades we've seen in the world a crisis of authority in the world, first of all, and then in the church. How our nation was founded upon biblical principles. We had Christian education. The attorneys and everyone that were trained in our major Ivy League schools were trained completely and exclusively from the, the open word of God. And then, of course, in 1905, we had what was called progressive education. Then we said that in 1933, humanism was introduced uh, into our society. And by 1963, we have an anti-Christian philosophy. Not only must it be out of our school system, but now we must attack it. If any, share, any part of it tries to come back into school, they're going to attack it. And consequently, without the Word of God, we come to a point of no absolutes. And when you have no absolutes, you have a crisis of authority. Who can say what's right or wrong? Our psychologists who come along and psychiatrists come along and say, nothing is absolute. You can say nothing is right and nothing is wrong. It all depends on the circumstances. It's called situation ethics. During this whole time, the church basically was silent, doing their own thing, singing that Jesus is coming soon, and we can't worry about the things here in the world. In 1973, for the Humanist Manifesto number 2, we said, which promoted the crisis of authority in the world when they began to teach Evolution, atheism, amorality, socialism and one world government, alternate lifestyles being legitimatized, and promoting anti-Christian sentiment throughout society. You remember I read you last week, all alienating, this was put in the Humanist Manifesto number two, all alienating forces must be modified or eradicated, and it was speaking of Christianity. Christianity is an alienating force. Why? Because we say there's one way. We say that Jesus is Lord. Any other way is the wrong way. They say that's an alienating force. And it must be either modified, we must change them, or it must be destroyed, eradicated. And the war of philosophy goes on. Will we allow the elite to rule like the socialist one-world government wants us to have, or are we going to allow God to rule in this world? And it's time for the church to awaken. Secular humanism, by the way, was not founded back, as I said, back in 1933. Secular humanism was founded in the Garden of Eden. You'll find it in Genesis, the third chapter, verses 4 and 5. The founding of humanism, secular humanism. Genesis, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And the serpent said, or we can say, and Satan said, Ye shall not surely die. Your eyes shall be opened, and you will be like gods, and you will know for yourselves what is good and what is evil. You won't need God. You yourselves will become God. You will say what's right. You will say what's wrong. You will say what's acceptable. You will say what is not acceptable. And this is the basis for humanism. It's demonic origin, satanic origin. That I myself, the force that is within me, has the right and the knowledge and the ability to make the decisions that have to be made in life. It begins with humans and not with God. I can lift myself up by my bootstraps. It begins with nature and not with deity. We have tree huggers today and people writing, going around with bumper stickers saying, the earth is my mother. I tell you, it, it's incredible. The scripture says that they will worship the creature rather than the creator. And that's exactly what we're experiencing today. God is you know, irrelevant as far as individual existence is concerned to the humanist, the secular humanist. We don't need God. 
and they're moving stronger and stronger and trying to get stronger in government but thank God we're starting to see a backlash now but Tim LaHaye was saying in his book The Battle for the Mind that hundreds of millions of dollars have made available every year by our government to support schools and colleges and universities and all these different institutions that are promoting secular humanism and the church stands back with their hands folded and we have a crisis of authority in the world we have a crisis of authority in the church in Washington DC there's an interesting office I wish I could visit there sometime and maybe one day I will my wife has told me that uh, it, it's a very interesting thing to take tours of Washington DC and I have never done that when when I went up there one time we went around it as fast as we could so we didn't get involved in it you hear all horror stories about our nation's capital and so I didn't want to get involved in it but there's a place called the Bureau of Standards the Bureau of Standards where they fix standards for example they will tell you a foot is what 12 inches a yard is well it could be 35 or 33 or 32 couldn't it? I mean you have to be so absolute I mean what's a pound what's wrong with 17 or 15 now how about a what's what's a pet what what's a pet that's what a hen does I huh? know there's four pecks in the bushel and the one peck is eight quarts exactly eight quarts is a peck so you got 32 quarts is a bushel now we live by these standards every day the speed limit is what <laughs> whatever the Lord says to you huh? no. but you see that sign right alongside the road oh 50 you know we have standards in the Bureau of Standards you can't can you imagine huh? you just you, you go to a contractor and you tell him you want him to build your house and you come out the next day or the next week when he starts building the house and he's got 10 men working there and you go around and you find that each one of them has a different measuring tape some inches are that long some inches are that long some inches are that long and they're all going to build that house and everyone's got a different can you imagine the chaos that would take place in that house think about it the electrician comes and you're supposed to have a hundred and ten what well, just let me give you an example I recently had all the wiring outside in the yard changed and the man who's had 40 years of electrical experience just didn't take the time to think am I on the high leg or the low leg on, on the three we have three phase electricity coming into our property he didn't think that's a little high leg low leg. to me what's a leg a leg's a leg you know I thought both legs look the same but there's a high leg and a low leg I didn't know that when he hooked it up he's supposed to hook up single phase electricity to the low leg positive he hooked up to the high leg well what's the difference electricity is electricity sure you just flick the switch all the light bulbs went pow the ones up in my yard got extremely bright I said man they're working better than ever minor detail just because his measurements were off he wasn't absolutely positive he didn't set a standard he didn't go by the standard oh, what's the difference I mean just a little bit more electricity what's it going to hurt well I'll tell you it ensures uniformity when Pat and I are on the road we say you know it's nice to know if you go into a certain chain of restaurants that it's always the same I mean whether I'm in Florida or Minnesota or Pennsylvania when I see Cracker Barrel my mouth just waters because I know that food is going to be great in the Cracker Barrel they've got uniformity they have got consistency now when it comes to a Bureau of Standards it eliminates men's opinion 
can you imagine coaching a, a, a baseball game and one coach says, hey, he's had three strikes, but he had a tough day. Let's give him four. You can, you imagine, can you imagine what Lou and, and Skip would say about that time that happened? Huh? You've got to be kidding. Where did this yellow yahoo come from? Well, come on, fellas, let up a little bit. Don't be so legalistic about it. I mean, after this guy's really trying, give him another. Hey, it's three strikes and you're out. Four balls. And the guy goes, no, look, my pitcher's had a bad week. So let's give him six balls before the guy gets to walk. You know, we, we laugh at this. Because we have set standards that are going to be a certain way and nothing can change them or there's going to be chaos. Can you imagine if all of a sudden somebody says, I believe red means go and green means stop. In downtown Orlando, half the drivers believe just the opposite. You know? Oh, so let me tell you something. There's a crisis of authority in the church. There's only one standard that God has given us, and that's his word. That's why I'm saying again, my church must teach the foundational truths of the Bible and reinforce my basic convictions based upon what the word of God says. The Bible says there's only one God, there's only one Lord. The government shall be upon his shoulders. Now, the governments of the world can say and do whatever they want to, but I want them to know that God still rules over all of them. They can't get away with a thing. What was it Jesus said to Pilate? He said, don't you know I have the power of life and death over you? And he said, you have no power whatsoever over me but what the Father has given you. I wish that more people knew that about the HRS today and the IRS and all the rest of it. You have no power over me but what God has allowed you to have over me. You can't do anything to me because my God, the government, is upon his shoulders. In Isaiah 33, 22, it says, The Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, and he alone will save us. Paul the apostle said, There is no power but of God. Well, what are you talking about? Don't you know we have armies and we have missiles? And there is no power but of God. During the seven-day war over in Israel, we, uh, stories came out uh, that were confirmed by many witnesses that there were times when the Israelis started to go down through a valley and the Arabs were on both sides, on the mountains on both sides, and they were going to pulverize them in a crossfire. And they looked up and they saw bright like angels come right across the power, and the people were slain on both sides of the hillside. And the Jews were not shooting, Jewish people were not, soldiers were not shooting at all. But there were just massive explosions all down the side, and there was no planes in the air at that time. There is no power but of God. They had miracle after miracle after miracle take place during that seven-day war. When they were supposed to have been caught in a certain situation, Somehow they didn't get caught and they were able to get through when they weren't supposed to get through. There is no power but of God. Remember when Peter and John spoke to the political leaders in Jerusalem after they had healed the uh, man? They, they were arrested and the leader said, Now you're to quit preaching this Jesus. We don't want to hear any more of this stuff. They said, Yes, sir, whatever you say, sir. No, they weren't like many people today. They said, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. First generation Christians, if they had nothing else, they had convictions and priorities. Were they submitted to the government? Yes. But first of all, they were submitted to Jesus Christ. Were they submitted to the spiritual leaders in their country? Yes. But first of all, they were submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They had convictions, they had standards, and they had priorities. And I want to tell you something, even the humanists say that cannot stand. Those kind of people are going to have to be dealt with because we can't have those kind of people operating in the society we want to have because we want everything to be relevant. 
Billy Graham made this statement. The majority today live with only two poor values. Get this now. Two poor values. Write them down. They're very interesting. The first one is personal peace. Lord, do whatever you want to, as long as it doesn't alter my lifestyle. I don't want my schedule disrupted and messed up. The first value that many Christians have today is personal peace. And the second one is affluence. Affluence. Don't let it affect my status. I'll do anything you want me to do, but Lord, don't let it affect my status. I, you know, I've got a pretty good thing going here. I've got a pretty nice job, and I don't want to mess that up. Now, I want to tell you something. When I was a young Christian, uh, my father was so concerned about me ever doing anything in any way that would jeopardize my job. He thought to be fired from a job was the worst thing that could possibly happen to you, and that was the reason why I didn't think I could go to school. I had a very good job. As you can imagine, way back there in the dark ages, making over a hundred and some dollars a week while I was still in high school. I got fired in a way that was totally, I had nothing to do with it. Honestly, had nothing, knew nothing what was going on. They just said, you're fired. I said, for what? You know what? No, I don't know what. Yeah, you know what? No, I don't know what. I got fired. And I said, God, you must be in charge of this situation. I don't know what you want to do, but you know, the long and short of it was God had to do that in my life. And I had to come to a place I said, Lord, it doesn't make a difference what they think of me. You know what I was trying to do right. And by noon that same day, I had a better job, more income, and consequently, God could then speak to me about going to Bible school. I'll tell you, he will jerk you around. If he wants you to do something, you can do whatever you want to, but he'll jerk you around and get you in line so that you can run on the track. Only if you have a priority that it doesn't make a difference what I want to do, I have only one priority, and that is Jesus Christ is Lord of my life, and everything else is secondary. I could have just gotten really concerned about what my dad was going to say about getting fired, but I said, that doesn't make any difference either, Lord. I had nothing to do with this. I know you must be doing something in my life, and I'm going to thank you for it ahead of time. Problem is today, relativistic humanism is permeating the church. It isn't outside the church anymore. Recently, I've had people come and say to me, what are we going to do? All the, the, the statistics that used to be outside the church are now inside the church. The Arab camel has gotten inside the tent. We're outside, and they're inside, the camel's inside the tent. Think of a few, just a few of the problematical areas that we're facing in churches today that some years ago were unknown. Remember we talked about in school how I was always an outstanding student standing out in the hall when the rest of them were in class because I was always getting in trouble. I did nasty things like throw spitballs or chew gum or dip some girl's hair in the inkwell behind her, you know, on my desk. You know, real nasty things like that. Now, you look at that, and if somebody did that, because that's all they did in school today, our teachers would be elated. Our teachers would want to stay there until they died. What are we dealing with in, in our relativistic society today in the church? We're dealing with abortion. There are a lot of Christians saying, nothing wrong with abortion. You know, in the case of this and this, I would have, I'd have my wife have an abortion. Homosexuality. I should say sodomy. The role of women. There are women now that want to be preachers. There's women now that want to be authorities in the church. Someone asked some women livers not too long ago, do you really think that the Pope will ever ordain women to be priests? And their answer was, sure she will. It'll take you a minute. Sure she will. She'll ordain priests to the priesthood before long. And you see, now, a few years ago that would never have been heard of, never even intimated. But in the, in the interest of equality today, we're going to see things taking place in the church that are totally anti-scriptural. How about capital punishment? When this society was established, we knew that God said if a man takes a man's life, his life shall be taken by man. 
And today they say that's cruel and unusual punishment. The, the young lady that just drowned her two sons with premeditation there in South Carolina, there was so much pressure on that jury that they are going to give her life in prison. And she will be there, probably, they said, about 30 years, and then she'll have a chance to get out after 30 years. You see, there is no, you know what, you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, God says if someone takes someone's life and you don't take their life, the ground of that nation becomes corrupted and polluted, and God will have to judge it. You say, but Jesus says thou shalt not kill it. No, Jesus said thou shalt not do murder. Jesus said, or Paul said, that this, do not despise the government. It does not bear the sword in vain. And when, when Noah was in the ark and came out of the ark and God reestablished international worldwide rules and, and laws, it was that if any man sheds any man's blood, his blood shall be shed also by man. And today in the churches, in most churches, in many churches, you'll find people that just say absolutely not, no one should die. Let me tell you something. Somebody can get saved and then if they are executed, absent from the body, present with the Lord, they're totally forgiven. I believe that. But they still owe a debt to society. We cannot get away. We have got so much of this in our churches today, it, it, it just is amazing to me. It's not based upon the Word of God. It's, it's about fuzzy feelings. And the Word of God is very clear on capital punishment. How about in the deity of Christ? A study made several years ago showed that more people in the pew believe in the deity of Jesus Christ than in the pulpit, percentage-wise. Pastors coming out of some of the cemeteries, seminaries today, I'm sorry, seminaries today of our nation, many of the seminaries today are coming out denying or doubting the deity of Jesus Christ, the authority of the Word of God. Some of them today will tell you that it contains the Word of God, that it's not the total Word of God. If that's true, then Paul the Apostle should be cast out of the church and nothing of his writing should be read because it was he who said all the Scripture is inspired by God. All of it. So what did Jesus say? I mean, you go to some of your seminaries today and they'll tell you, well... They, there were five authors back there in Genesis and, and these books we can't really put in and when they came to Jesus he said why don't you go back and read about Moses and the laws and David and the prophets I mean the uh, Psalms uh, they tell of me he should have said you know you should go back there to, but just the one book that Moses wrote not the other four because they're higher critics again and it's permeating our church today Jesus said when I come again will I find any faith how about the miraculous element of the, the word of God and Jesus Christ himself this is not a natural book. It's a supernatural book. If you can go to some seminaries today and they'll tell you, well, there's a lot of religious books today. But this is not the same as any other religious book. And we've gone through that. How about divorce and remarriage? By the grace of God, one of these days I'm going to have enough money to be able to hire a staff of people who are going to go back to all the denominational bylaws and doctrinal statements for the last hundred years and show the progression that took place to find out who is the heretic. Will the real heretic please stand up to what the church teaches on marriage and divorce? I've gone back and checked on some of them, and they have taken a powerful stand that the marriage is for life and the divorce and remarriage constitutes adultery. And then you see it change, just change color like a chameleon up to the present day. And now anybody who says what they all said a few decades ago, they're the heretic. Why? Because we're coming to the end times, and as it was in the days, of Noah, so shall it come be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. How about child rights? How many of you older people knew what child rights were in your home? You had the right to have food in your, in your table, to have a bed to get under, and keep your mouth shut or you get in trouble. Don't you ever back talk me. Don't you ever know you don't have a right to breathe crookedly in this house. You do what I tell you to do and that's it. And it wasn't cruelty. 
what we used to call correction and spankings today are beatings and brutality and cruel and unusual punishment and not the right of a parent to do. I want to tell you something. They're setting us up. The humanist philosophy today in our government is setting us up to where they are going to control our children and not us unless we can turn it around. That's why we're having the revolution we're having right now. It's a political revolution in our nation to where there's new laws being changed and some of the old ones trying to be driven out of the government is to stop this thing. Now, I am usually an optimist, but I want to tell you something. As I read the Word of God, what's going to happen in the end times, we may have a small reprieve here, but I'm not too sure it's going to be a lengthy one. I'm not telling you, thus saith the Lord, but as I read the Word of God, I think we're going to have a short reprieve, and then I think it's going to come back with a vengeance again. When all those who have been on a free dole all these years finally get enough, mad enough, and they get enough of them mad, they'll come back and try to outvote us and say, we want the government to support us. And when they do... How many of you know the government gives you nothing for what, first of all, they take? In the church today, we have the exaltation of mind, man, self-esteem. You and I must believe that we are wonderful. We must believe that basically we are good. And the Word of God does not say that. There is none righteous, no, not one. The only good we have is in Jesus Christ. Paul said, there dwelleth no good thing in me. John the Baptist is the one that said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus said, humble yourself, and I'll exalt you. Exalt yourself, and I'll humble you. So we're coming to a place where people are going around saying, I need to love myself more, and I need to think more of myself. No, humble yourself more, think less of yourself, and realize that everything you are and hope to be is found in Jesus Christ. Without him, you're nothing. But that's being promulgated in our church today. I just heard a preacher this couple Sundays ago on Sunday morning when I was getting ready for church talking about, he said, we're not going to call it sin, we're going to call it that man has a problem. We won't call it sin. And he said, we have to deal with this problem because if we don't, in eternity there, uh, we will not. He said, well, I'm not going to use a technical term, but he said, we won't be with God. And I thought, tickle, 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 tickle. Jesus said, if you don't believe in me, you probably will not enjoy the elegance of conditions and circumstances that some who do believe in me in the days ahead will experience. Is that what he said? Then when it comes to choice of leadership in the church today, we have a real crisis of authority there. We're finding more and more denominations are allowing those whose lifestyles are totally contrary to what the Word of God says to come into places of leadership as pastors and bishops and archbishops and right on down the line. We're finding that fewer uh, and fewer requirements when it comes to spiritual leadership. I know in the past there have been people that have left here that we were praying for and hoping that they could come into a place of leadership, go to other churches and immediately put right to the very top in the churches. And I know some of the same situation where they were put to the top in a few years, the church was blown apart and they left and went to other churches. The requirements of leadership. Paul the Apostle said over and over again, give men jobs, give them another job, give them another job, watch them closely, see if they're faithful, see the level of their faithfulness. When I tell people that I've had men in this church for as many years as I have, and they speak and they teach and all these things. Wow. But you know something? You don't have to even have an office of leadership. When you walk in a spiritual walk before God, you just automatically come up in the eyes of the body, and they come to you, and they, they draw from you as a resource. Some people need, you know, that's why all these men join these silly clubs and put on silly hats and silly costumes and ride around in little electric carts and on horses all over the place. Because they want that esteem. They want that. You don't need that. Jesus said, don't worry about those. what the world gets. Just be faithful to me. I'll see to it that you're rewarded accordingly. 
Then we have a crisis in the church because we're not hearing the, the message of repentance. Over and over again, when I'm listening to people preach, uh, pastors preach today, I hear them talking, they say the word, but they don't explain what it means. To them it means, I'm sorry, now I'm going to go on. And that is not what it means. Repentance means not only am I sorry, I turn away from it and I go in the other direction. I was talking to David Andrew and today, he went over to England, and by the way, their trip to England, they just got back, 104 people accepted Christ while they were over there. They saw some wonderful miracles take place in the churches there. But he said, you know the thing I, I'm really intrigued by over there? He said, they don't have altar calls as such. Very seldom they have altar calls. They preach the word and the people go home because he says English people are not demonstrative. They won't come to an altar. But they'll go home and think and think and think and think on this thing. And finally, they will come back and declare Jesus is the Lord. He said, when they do it, they're solid. He says, when the trips we've taken over before, we've gone back. And every one of those people professed Jesus Christ while we were there. He said, they're still walking with the Lord and are faithful in the church. Because there was a, it was a conversion experience. And then we don't hear much about the new birth. We talk about believe, accept. But Jesus says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born from above, where you're born into the family of God. And if some pastor happens to announce that some of those on television have said, someone said, does God hear Jewish, Jews' prayers? The prayers of the Jewish people. Well, when he said Jewish people, I guess the pastor assumed that he meant people who are in Judaism. And the man said, no, unless they know Jesus Christ, he won't hear their prayer. And there was a storm from churches and pastors and the leaders of Christian seminaries against that pastor. Well, let me tell you something. Whether a person is a Jewish person or a Roman person, or a black person, or a Spanish person, whoever they might be, if they have never come to a conversion experience, they can pray until they're blue in the face and God will not hear their prayer. Now you say, that's racism. No, that's Bible. That's why humanism cannot put up with Christianity. And so what do we do? We modify it. We change it. Or we eradicate it. And if we can get enough of them modified to where the ones, uh, these right wing extremists can be isolated, then we can do to them what we've done to others in the past. There was a Christian center over in Cocoa Beach years ago, a man that I knew of that was preaching, and he was a, he was a real, I mean, that guy was just so strong. I mean, it's like a, a, another pastor I know here in the area here, if he knows there's someone around, he'll take a casket and go over and set it in front of the door and, and yell at them and do all sorts of things about them and just, just make a big ruckus and get the news out there. Well, this fellow was the same type of, I don't want to say rabble-rouser, but he, he sure did stir people up. And so what did the government do? They just clamped down on him and clamped down on him and clamped down on him and finally they came in and checked his books and audited him and did all these things and just wore him down and wore him down and just kept at it until finally he just went under and had to sell all his property, moved back to New Jersey, and he died up there broken heart. What? You have to modify it. And what they do, they'll go out there and find this one that's clear out on a limb doing all sorts of silly things and they'll attack them and all the rest of the church, oh, thank goodness, get rid of that guy. I mean, take care. They don't realize the minute they can do it to him, they can do it to us. They're just going to come slow, but very slowly, eating away and eradicating the church. And then another crisis of authority in the church is that we don't talk about sin. We talk about heaven, we talk about love, we talk about God. You see, sin creates guilt, and that, 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 that's very bad for a person's self-image. I'm telling you what I'm reading in Christian periodicals and many books that are out today. You go to some of our Christian bookstores and start picking books off the counter, you'll be shocked at some of the things that you're going to read in there. 
sin, if you say somebody's a sinner, that creates condemnation and it causes repression in their life and brings them into bondage and it's very legalistic. Jesus said, when I come again, will I find any faith on earth? Now why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And I want to tell you something. There is a spiritual, biblical ignorance in the church of Jesus Christ today. 